You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Thanks for downloading an episode of The Core Curriculum. This is a podcast dedicated to slow reading, a lot of times on the Christian Humanist Podcast and on other shows on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. We will talk about an entire novel in an hour. Uh, our good friend and fellow podcaster, Josh altman Schofer made the comment once on Twitter, what would happen if we read slowly instead? And thus this show was born. If you've been listening in, you know that we're talking about uh, Homer's Iliad, and here today to talk with me about Homer's Iliad, uh, first of all, is uh, I think a uh, first-time contributor to Core Curriculum, Dr. Danny Anderson, over at Mount Aloysius College. Danny, how are things? Uh, things are well. How are you guys? Thanks for having me on for this. I'm way out of my depth. Let me just warn everybody now. <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, and also on the line today... Uh, we've got Dr. David Grubbs from Houston Baptist University. David, how are things? Doing fine. Can't complain and shouldn't anyway. Very good. Well, <laughs> listeners, uh, hopefully you've been listening in and you know that we're up to book 10 of Homer's Iliad. Uh, we are at, you know, one of the ebbs and flows in this poem. Of course, part of what gives the poem its uh, dramatic movement over 24 books is that uh, sometimes it seems inevitable that the Trojans will drive the Greeks back to their ships, burn their ships, and wipe out the Greek army. Other times it seems like the walls of Troy are going to fall any minute. Uh, but it keeps swinging back and forth. And at this point, uh, night has fallen, and we are uh, in the camp of the Greeks. One of the things I noticed, guys, and uh, you know, I probably noticed this because I, I wrote my dissertation uh, on, among other things, the john milton epic paradise lost but i mean this is definitely a model for that right uh one of the things that you get in book 10 especially uh is two parallel councils like you get in books two and three of paradise lost one on the trojan side one on the greek side and i think that there's something interesting going on because among the achaeans or the greeks uh everyone wants to go on the mission to make the night raid on the trojans uh but over on the trojan side uh, it's interesting that there's really only one guy who is even willing to go, and he has to be talked into it. Um, <laughs> now, I don't want to make this, you know, angelic and diabolic too easily, because I, I think Milton is definitely making a change to things in Paradise Lost, as he does. Uh, but, I mean, what did you guys think about the, these uh, dueling councils there in Book 10? Danny, uh, why don't you take the first swing? Well, I think that, yeah, you, that what stood out to me in that exchange when Diomedes is like looking for um, partners uh, to go with him, you have a whole room full of hands go up and they choose Odysseus. Uh, Odysseus, because he's clever, basically, right? Um, he's, uh, he's chosen because um, he adds some brain to the brawn, I think. And, and so I think that there's some interesting um, connection between uh, sort of a well-roundedness on the Greek side that you don't necessarily get on the Trojan side. It's that side is all about, um, you know, bribing someone essentially <laughs> to go. Uh, and, and so, I'll, you know, I'll give you all this stuff if you, if you go. Right. And so you have this uh, uh, kind of, I, I suppose setting out some kind of moral traits of the sides uh, that gets uh, hashed out in that, in that exchange. Right, which are not consistent through the poem. I mean, this is one of the places where the Greeks come out looking good and the Trojans bad, but it certainly flips at different parts of the poem. That's part of what makes this interesting. Well, even in the even in the poem itself, even in this chapter, um, because you know Odysseus promises uh, Dolon, "Oh yeah, we won't kill you." Um, and then, of course, they kill him, <laughs> right? And so there's like a little bit of dishonor going on as well, uh, even on the Greek side. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious, I mean, since we made the segue there, I mean, you know, is that a species of dishonor? I'm sure uh, Hector might call it that. Or is this the craftiness of Odysseus, right? Uh, he basically, you know, leads with a promise 
uh, that, you know, is a stratagem, you know, very, a very bald stratagem. So, I mean, this is what he gets praised for uh, every time he gets praised, right? You know, he is Odysseus, never at a loss for words over and over in the Odyssey. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, David, what do you think? I mean, you know, the well, again, one of the things that I really like about this poem, there's not a whole lot of uh, overt, explicit moral judgment going on. The poem kind of lets you decide. Uh, do some deciding for us. I wondered whether the the honor thing comparing between the two, but, but by the way, I hadn't even thought of, uh, I, I'd never linked this with, with Paradise Lost, but uh, I have also done lamentably little reading of Paradise, Paradise Lost with Iliad in the other hand. Um, apparently I need to do that uh, stat. It, it was kind of my dissertation. There you go. Um, but I wondered the degree to which Tro a, a Trojan had to be bribed into this because all the Trojan guys are standing there listening to Hector's pitch going, eh, we're kind of stand-up fight guys. We're not really sneaky guys. That sounds, we're not, we're not down with that. Um, so that when you when you cut over to the Achaeans and they're all like, oh yeah, let's sneak over there and cut some throats. Um, oh yeah, the, the Achaeans are basically a biker gang, <laughs> right? <laughs> like like you know cl clearly you know like you you know which dojo and Karate Kid you're you're overhearing at which time. <laughs> so I mean clearly the the Achaeans are effective. Like that, that, that's emphasized and Athena, Athena loves them. Right. Um, you know, Odysseus is her dude. He's, he's, he's her dude all through this poem, just like he will be all through the Odyssey. But, uh, if you pull Hector out of these pages and ask him whether this particular chapter is, uh, strictly on the up and up and honorable, um, I don't know that he would answer yes, even when Dolan is his idea. But Dolan, I don't know. I, the impression I got is that he was much more strictly a spy, whereas, you know, Diomedes and Odysseus are a kill team. Right, right. And I think we could turn to that because, uh, you know, this was uh, a conversation that you two were having before we started recruiting that, uh, you know, this episode here in Book 10 of The Night Raid uh, partakes in a lot of the tropes that would later become a uh, ninja movie standard. So I'm going to turn you two loose on that for a minute and uh, talk ninjas for us. Well, yeah, I mean, David is the one that brought that up, and I think that's why you asked me <laughs> to be on this episode to, to make <laughs> banal pop culture um, references. And so, yeah, um, absolutely. I, you see this kind of trope in a lot of action movies later on, right, for sure. You, you definitely see um, the person who goes in and um, sort of sabotages uh, the enemy overnight through the cover of night, right? Through just skill and, and will, right? And uh, and honestly, the, the amount of bodies that the two accumulate uh, in the... Um, uh, in the night raid, when they when they right raid that camp after getting the information from Dolan, I mean that's that's akin to a John Wick movie, right? And you have uh, uh, the amount of uh, just sheer carnage that is that is recounted. Um, there's not really any reflection on it. It's just uh, a tolling bodies kind of. Yeah, I mean they get fourteen, including that poor Dolan dude. Yeah. Yeah, and then they, and then they steal the horses, right, and uh, and bring them back to uh, to the camp, and everybody's all impressed with their skill, right? So, <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I think that's notable that among the Achaeans, I mean, there is unmitigated and unqualified praise for Odysseus and Diomedes, right? I mean, you know, there's there's really no one there who will do the work of Hector when Hector, you know, insults Paris for being a bowman rather than a spearman. Yeah, you know, these guys are. Uh, you know, you know, like David said, I mean, you know, they're not doing field combat here. They are sneaking in, attacking people when they're unprepared and unarmed, but the Achaeans just love it. Yeah. And that going back to, you said that earlier about how there's sort of a different value system at play, um, among the soldiers of Troy and, and, and the, and the Greeks. Um, and I think that that's really interesting because I mean, to, 
the modern reader, I mean, the Greeks are clearly the heroes. If you're just jumping into this chapter, the Greeks are the heroes because they get things done, right? They're they're SEAL Team Six, kind of, right? And, and, and yeah. you've got this, uh, uh, and, and and it is interesting about how the, I guess, ethics of war um, are kind of uh, debated in this, and what gets prioritized and what gets um, what gets that not, what gets lauded, I guess, and and what gets um, sort of shamed. And here it is sort of craft and not necessarily fairness or honor that gets shamed that gets that gets lauded. Excuse me. And so um, yeah, and it's interesting to me that um, like we read that as hero heroic today, and it's an interesting moral question as to whether we should. Right? I mean, they killed a prisoner of war like in cold blood, right? Yeah, it's it's true. But I mean, you know, Danny, I mean, to, to go back to Cobra Kai since David brought that up. Yeah. And by the way, David, that might have been a mistake because now I might not stop. But, you know, I mean, that is part of the dynamic in the Karate Kid movies and in the Cobra Kai uh, YouTube series uh, is precisely, you know, what are the parameters within which you can call a fight honorable or fair? Right. Uh, so it's interesting. I mean, you know, uh, not to go as far forward as as. Cobra Kai, but to go as far forward as Dante, uh, you know, eventually he's going to throw Diomedes and Ulysses or Odysseus uh, into the circle of the false counselors. And he's very explicit that, you know, it's not because they sent people out to drown at the base of Mount Purgatory, but it's because of the Trojan horse It's because of that false surrender. Mm. So, I mean, you know, there is a, a Ciceronian Roman honor that, you know, develops later than this poem, obviously, uh, but th- that that does teach us to regard deception as something that is, at the very least, on the margins of acceptability in warfare. That just doesn't seem to be a concern within the poem, except that. And 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 David, I wanna I wanna hear you comment on this some more. That might be one of the roots of the Trojan reluctance to go on this night mission. And I hadn't thought about that. I read it as basic self-preservation. Okay, there's thousands of Greeks out there, you want to send one guy out there, that's nuts, we're not going to do it. But what I hear you saying is, you know, this is also maybe not the Trojan way. Well, the poet, we'll call him Homer, because we don't have any other name. Just call him Homer. Yeah, Homer. (laughs) We're friends here. (laughs) So Homer has never been shy about letting us hear the emotional responses to uh, moments of oratory, right? So the, the the speech from the the leader will be given, and then we'll give we'll, we'll be given some kind of insight into how uh, the listeners respond. Um, you know, they're psyched by the rah rah speech or or whatever. Hector's proposal, um, the translation that I've got, uh, which is the the Fagel's translation says, so Hector proposed, all ranks held their peace. But the only thing that Homer wants us to see here is that as soon as he stops talking, you could hear a pin drop. Um, right, right. Like, they, they, they aren't emoting, they aren't reacting, you don't hear cowardice or shuffling feet as they exchange awkward glances. They just give him the silent treatment, except for this one guy who I always, I, I find this so interesting that he's rich, not pretty, fast, and the only son in the midst of five sisters. To what extent does this little guy feel like he has to show that he's macho? <laughs> right? Um, all the all the heroes are just kind of like, no thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but you know Dolan who maybe feels like he has something to prove he's the one who steps up um, and and hopes to claim a big reward for it and even in, in, in his his weasel cap I, I just think is hilarious <laughs> How does yeah I, I, I saw that little detail and I thought <laughs> okay I know what a weasel cap would signify in the era of Disney movies but I, I'm not sure if that would have in the 8th century BC. So I, 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 I flew on past it. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I figure that it's like, it's like a, it's like a plus two weasel cap of sneaking or something like that. 
Nice. <laughs> and and the weaseling though, like on that topic though, continues. Uh, he's like very readily sort of sells out his side. Oh yeah. When, when captured, right? Uh, and he says, "Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you where everything is. Just uh, just let me go, right?" And so he's he's. Yeah, that that's a movie trope that gets subverted, right? Because you know it's supposed to be the do what you're gonna do. I'm not telling you nothing. Dolan Name, says, rank, and serial number. Yeah, there you go. There you go. But Dolan says, okay, what is it that you want to know? I can basically tell you anything. Just don't cut my head off. Look, they're right there. Right, yeah. I'll take you there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost comical the way he, he weasels out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we talked about Ulysses, or uh, sorry, I, I've been, I, I most recently taught the Aeneid, and now that's all getting clogged up in my noggin. Uh, but you brought up Dante, Nathan. I'm going to blame you for that one. Now, I'll, I'll take the blame now, for that now, one. now Ulysses is in my head. Um, Odysseus gives him the promise of clemency, but it's Diomedes who says, uh, as soon as Lou lets you go, you're going to slink back to your fast ships playing the spy again or fight us face to face. And so, but if I snuff your life out with my hands or in my hands, you'll never annoy our Argive lines again. And then he kills him outright. Um, right, and if this were a modern move, uh, war story, there would be someone there to say, "No, Diomedes, you don't want to become that guy." Yeah, except but Diomedes is that guy. <laughs> but uh, here is this—is this maybe the first uh, literary instance of good cop, bad cop? Oh, I didn't even think about that angle. Oh, Danny, gosh. what do you think? Yeah, that's it. I mean, it plays that way, whether that was Odysseus. I, I wonder what Odysseus's reaction is to uh, what he did. I mean, is he offended that, like, dude, I just promised that guy we wouldn't kill him, and you just chopped his head off, right? Um, um, or is he, was that, are they just sort of in Sapatico there with the plan? That is a really good question, because, yeah, it doesn't, uh, uh, it, if it's good cop, bad cop, it's a complicated one. Well, yeah, I'm going to go with yeah. uh, David's point. Uh, actually, in an episode that listeners you'll hear after this one, but it's in our past because we time travel <laughs> on this show. But, uh, you know, uh, if we think of uh, the Odyssey as, you know, part of a continuous text, which I tend to do, uh, I mean, this is the same guy who later is going to make a pun as he blinds somebody. So, I mean, yeah. you know, I I just don't think of Odysseus as having a whole lot of uh, I don't know, sympathy for his enemies. Yeah, yeah. Th- I mean, that totally makes sense. I mean, and we get no sense that he steps in. Can I just, like, read the, the, the killing scene? I I have the Fagel's translation, too, David, so... Um, yeah, all three of us do. All three uh, of us do. Oh, okay, good. Um, it, with that, just as Dolan reached up for his chin to cling with a frantic hand and beg for life, so Dolan is kind of you know, weaseling to the last, to the last breath here. Diomedes struck him square across the neck, a flashing hack of the sword, both tendons snapped and the shrieking head went tumbling in the dust. They tore the weasel cap from the head, stripped the wolf pelt. Um, It's the, the level of gruesomeness is, uh, I think kind of shocking, uh, I mean, I, well, not to our sensibilities today, but I think if you were to show this to teenagers today, they would be shocked at how like contemporary it feels in, in terms of the level yeah. of gruesomeness. And so, yeah, that that scene really did stick out to me, um, and for a number of important ways. Wait, Homer is a Tarantino yeah. director, <laughs> like, like like that's that's his that's his. He does style. talk about the lovely ankles of a lot of the women too. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of time traveling, we just we have our new functioning theory. Uh, Quentin Tarantino invents a time machine, goes back in time, becomes Homer. <laughs> oh man, are there like twelve page descriptions of Athena's feet um, in the in, in, in anyway? No, but you know, uh, there 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 are some there are some some beautiful women who every time they show up, they get to be neat ankled. <laughs> That, that's so funny. Um, the role of Athena in this is interesting. As soon as, uh, I mean, Odysseus's response is not, man, I told him we were going to spare his life, but instead to say, woohoo, praise Athena, we got sweet loot. 
<laughs> and the very last scene is them in uh, book 10 is Odysseus and Diomedes returned in triumph, pouring out uh, an, uh, an offering of wine uh, to Athena for keeping them safe. Um, so Athena is, she's a tactical goddess, but she's not like Ares. Ares is a, Ares is a berserker. Ares is going to fight you head on. Um, but Athena, she's tricky. She's sneaky. I, I think this is, this is, this is her thing. She's clearly played some medical, some metal, metal gear solid or something. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, there's a, yeah I can see a lot Creed. of yeah. There's a lot of video game like inspiration in this scene, particularly. Yeah. Although there are times when uh, you know the Greeks are are squaring up toe to toe against the Trojans, and I mean it's Athena who gives them power to blast through you know fully armored shield lines as well. So I mean I think yeah. that Athena. I mean I what what I would say is she has some range and compa- some capacity <laughs> that Aries lacks, right? Well, no, 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 I'm, I'm being serious here. No, I, know, I mean, I know. you know, in order to win this, you know, this, this original epic war, uh, you can't merely be a spy, but you can also not merely be an, a heavy infantry unit. You have to be able to do both. And yeah. it's Athena that gives them the capacity to do both. And it's also notable that whenever the Trojans are worshipping, they are just as likely to be worshipping at a shrine of Athena as they are at a shrine of any other god. So, I mean, that's that's a dynamic that uh, I, I never really noticed when I was younger reading this poem, but the last couple times I've read it, I've noticed that, you know, as they are praying to and offering, you know, wine libations to Athena, she is working for the other side. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's a a statement about the gods that I, I never really appreciated when I was younger that, you know, uh, in Homer's universe, uh, the fact that you are doing for the gods is no guarantee that the gods will do for you. I can't remember the source of this, where, where I read it, but it's referenced in Dante. Um, Diomedes and Odysseus Ulysses are in the circle of the evil counselors, for m- multiple reasons. The Trojan horse is the first listed. Um, but the third, if I remember rightly, is the the desecration of the Palladium. Yeah, that's right. That's and right. It, if I remember rightly, correct me, correct me if I've if I've missed this reference. Um, isn't it Odysseus and Diomedes purposely purposely desecrating? the the Trojan shrine to Athena so that they cannot effectively pray to her. Something like that. Yeah, I think that's about right. And uh, uh, Aeschylus actually cites that as the reason that the gods have turned on Agamemnon. Yeah. That he, you know, it's, it's not his uh, brutality to the Trojans and it's not even his kidnap of Cassandra, but it is that he desecrated temples in troy interesting maybe 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 aeschylus is the is the source for that but i find that interesting as too as an example of well one it's connected to athena they're praying to athena and odysseus and diomedes know they're praying to athena and they want to cut that link maybe athena wants them to cut that link yeah, it's reminiscent, David, to, uh, and I, I can't remember the year offhand, but that episode in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle where uh, after one king defeats another king, uh, he kills all of the Christian priests because they were praying for the other army to win. Yeah. Which, you know, struck me as a very uh, Homeric moment in that very medieval text. Yes. It doesn't, um, <clears throat> in the in book 11, they describe Agamemnon's armor and and his gear um and am i gathering this from other i mean i read so much in prep for this just to not feel like a complete moron but uh am i right that the shield is also athena's shield it's got a gorgon's head on it um and so isn't that she's sort of care he's carrying like literally athena's shield into battle like and so yeah she does definitely side with um 
I mean, there's no question, obviously, <laughs> who she's siding with, right? But, um, but yeah, and so I think that that's that's interesting, and and I don't know, it just bears and brings to my mind the nature of of her of her whatever of her craft or her qualities, I guess, whatever they are, good or bad. Um, and if I can jump out of the text real briefly, um, is that okay? It hasn't slowed us down yet. Okay, okay. I, I, yeah, I don't know like, how these things will operate yet. I'm recording well, we've one. Got, without... We've gone from Dante to Tarantino to John Wick, so why not? Well, let me bring in Philip Roth um, because uh, in his book, The Human Stain, it actually takes place at a place called Athena College. Um, and I, that's, it makes a lot about it. The whole book is framed as a kind of Greek tragedy in a lot of ways. And, um, and I hadn't actually thought much about, I mean, I've thought about the name Athena a lot, of course, with that book. Um, the, the main character is a classics professor who gets caught up in this, uh, sort of wave of political correctness and, uh, and, and has this kind of the rage of Achilles basically, uh, bears down upon the college. And, and I'm actually, it's interesting the way Roth actually has two versions of Athena College. In an earlier book, The Ghost Writer, there's uh, Athena spelled with an E at the end, uh, Athene, Athena College, um, which is a much kind of gentler, kind of classic liberal arts girls co- girls, girls college, right? Um, by the time we see it again, like 20 or 30 years later when he's writing um, The Human Stain, it's Athena College with an A, and I have no idea why he changes the spelling. Um, but it, it is a much more kind of like... Um, political and um, du- duplicitous space, and, and and I wonder if he's really just cashing in on that aspect of Athena's character, um, and that's why he wants to emphasize the name a little bit more by by changing the spelling. And so it is uh, it, um, always fascinating to me his use of of Greek mythology, but particularly in this conversation, I think um, he's really drawing on something about her character from this poem um, that helps feed that book. I, I think that's a good connection. I, you know, I mean, what I noticed about his shield is that it has the Medusa on it, so it is the shield, the shield of Athena, mm-hmm. and it also has the faces of rout and fear. Uh, so, I mean, you know, it strikes me that you know uh, Agamemnon uh, symbolically uh, seems to be Homer's way of talking about the realities that are going to define any kind of battle in this po in this poem, right? I mean, you know, it's not a uh, a Dungeons and Dragons fight where they slap each other till one of them runs out of hit points. I mean, every fight ends when one of the sides breaks, right? You know, it's always yeah. panic. It's always the route that determines it. I mean, all the way up to the, the final battle between Achilles and Hector, right? I mean, you know, it's a, um, Homer has a, a psychological acuity when it comes to warfare that, you know, I, I think is definitely uh, worth attending to. Yeah. It's interesting that you bringing up the psychology of it uh, from the beginning of book 10, the psychological element has been there. Uh, uh, We were uh, previously, Nathan, we were, we were in the episode, I think we're, I think we're in the previous episode, eight and nine in book eight, the, the two camp, the two armies stop for the night and camp. And at the end of book eight, there's this reference to the thousand fires um, stretched out before the walls of Troy like stars. And uh, in book nine, uh, Agamemnon sends uh, his most trusted advisors and captains to go peel to Achilles. Uh, for him to get back into the fight unsuccessfully. And so book 10 begins with Agamemnon marveling at the horror of those fires, a thousand fires blazing against the walls of Troy. So this, you know, book 10 and the uh, Assassin's Creed mission (laughs) that starts it uh, is birthed out of this night-long... really psychological struggle of the head general um, who's staring at this overwhelming number of campfires, which represents an overwhelming number of troops. He's freaking out and he knows that his attempt to, uh, to square away the sort of the, 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 the frontal assault through getting Achilles has failed. 
Right. So uh, I, I find that really interesting the way the book, book 10 begins by getting in the head of Agamemnon as he's as he's kind of mulling over what are my options now? Achilles has said no. We've been driven back to our ships. The Trojans are outside the walls. Um, now what? And uh, the book 10 sort of starts slow with him meeting his brother and then he and his brother go wake up Nestor and then Nestor goes and wakes up some guys. And it's this very kind of peaceful nighttime um, uh, moving from one sleeping warrior to another, finding which ones are restful and which ones are restless. Uh, I actually really like that scene, but it's, it's this quiet moment where they all have to, be more or less alone with their thoughts and you can see which ones, which ones are capable of sleep. And apparently it's Odysseus and Diomedes. <laughs> right. Right. And it's interesting, David, because I, when I read those, that sequence, uh, it brought to my mind paradise lost where after a failed frontal assault, you know, Satan goes around to Beelzebub and Balliol and so on and so forth. And, you know, wakes them and then they make plans for some other, attack since the frontal assault has failed. So again, I mean, you oh, know, that's interesting. Uh, Milton's obviously aware of Homer and he's also uh, doing some new things with it. Uh, but it's interesting. I mean, you know, I, I, I think because you didn't write a dissertation on paradise lost, you're better able than I am to read the poem on its own terms in that respect. I think that's good. What I see is all the, all the war movies that have these moments, that kind of lull in the battle where you, where you get, officers talking honestly um the you know during the time when the soldiers are asleep the officers are awake uh having to figure out now what are we going to do when the sun comes up and all this goes down again it's hmm, that's good re- that's good really really interesting yeah and i mean and to go back to roth one last time coleman silk the the classics professor in his uh classes he he tells his classes that all of Western civilization springs out of this poem. Like he, he mentions this poem as being the, the springboard for all art and, and, and literature of Western civ. And he's probably not wrong about that. Yeah. It's just a mine of tropes. In a lot of ways, uh, tropes that we've forgotten went back this far. Um, I taught, high schoolers, uh, a, a dual credit class at HBU, um, last fall. And we read through, we read through the Iliad slowly and they were amazed at how many things they knew from, from fiction, especially fantasy fiction and film, action films, war films, um, that they, they were amazed at how many of these moments, how many of these scenes and tropes, uh, they they were familiar with and uh it 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 lent the discussion um uh, a real kind of edge it was like finding the source code the source code of of a whole strand of our pop culture yeah oh sure sure uh i mean all the way down to the nicknames that these people have and i'm just going to point this up because there's no good segue so i'm going to use that bad bad segue to point this up but in uh book 10 uh, line 310 in the Fagels, since we're all using Fagels. Uh, there's this moment that I never would have noticed when I was first reading this in high school. Uh, but, you know, they are arming Odysseus for this night raid. And it says, uh, the wolf himself, Autolycus, lifted that splendid headgear out of Elion once and so on and so forth, right? Uh, and, you know, what Homer just did was uh, that wolf himself, Lucas Auton, Autolycus, so he made a little nice. Greek dad joke there. Uh, but again, you know, uh, it's kind of nice. I mean, you know, the Greek that I took in seminary paid off for that brief moment, and I got a chuckle that I wouldn't have gotten 20 years ago. Oh, wow. So, so that when Autolycus walked into the room, people were like, hey, the wolf himself. Yeah, basically, basically. That's really cool. You probably were digging on the wolf imagery too, Danny, but... Uh, you know, no, if you thought Dolan was going to turn into a lycanthrope, no such luck. <laughs> Which is also a Greek word, anthropos, man, lukos, wolf. 
Oh, yeah, showing off for Seminary Creek. Okay. I mean, it all, it all starts with King Lycan, right? And um, yeah, yeah that's, that's that's the, the source code for all werewolves. And so, sure. so, absolutely. And also for Facebook. Oh, Lordy. <laughs> well, at any rate, that bad joke aside, uh, I'm sure Michael just added the uh, sad trombones on that one. Um, I do want to talk not about a wolf, but about a lion in book 11, because... Uh, this is one of the few moments in the Iliad where I actually like Agamemnon, uh, when he goes lion mode on us and, you know, starts tearing into people. Uh, and I was re I was rereading this poem this summer as I was teaching, uh, genealogy, genealogy of morals by Friedrich Nietzsche. And I couldn't help but notice that, you know, I mean, uh, when Nietzsche talks about, you know, these sort of world historic figures who, defy morality and impose their will on the world uh he always refers to them as blonde beasts or lions and here i mean you know homer very straightforwardly makes agamemnon the lion of the battlefield i mean he is tearing people up left and right uh he is an unstoppable force but he also has an intelligence on the battlefield that hector and achilles when they're in full frenzy mode don't have right i mean it's a very targeted you know he sees and then he kills he doesn't just well, I mean, you know, later in the poem, I mean, Achilles goes so ape-dropping crazy that he actually starts hitting the river with a sword and beats the river. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, you know <laughs> so, I mean, he's not Diomedes. He's not Achilles. I mean, he's a very different kind of killer. Um, I, I might be a sociopath because I enjoy that so much. What do you guys think? Uh, yeah, I, I, I like the... I like the tactician. Uh, I like the uh, the maybe it's maybe it's you know remainders of Tom Clancy or something. Uh, I love uh, that that show that uh, it's 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 not on anymore on anymore. But uh, Burn Notice, did you ever watch Burn Notice? Oh, I watched the heck out of some Burn oh, Notice. Okay, so yeah, I mean, anything with Bruce Campbell, I'm probably going to show up for. Amen. So much of Burn Notice consists of Michael Weston. I was a spy, uh, talking his way through tactical s scenarios, um, the ways that he sets up obstacles or distractions, but then talking his way through fights. And you do this sort of thing for this reason, and you hit them in this place in order to get this effect, and you use your the furniture, or the environment, and these kinds of ways. And I bet you didn't know you could do this with a pin, um, and so forth. If you can get your enemy into a bathroom, you have a tactical advantage because yes. yeah, <laughs> and and his voice just begs for imitation. I won't do any more because our yes. listeners have suffered enough. But yeah, yeah, I mean I, that that's part of what makes that show so yep. fun. Well, there's a bit of that here. I think you're right. I, I hadn't realized that I'd been maybe giving Agamemnon a, a Michael Weston voiceover, but that this is kind of the point where where that makes that makes a certain sense when he's thinking through who do I target out of this, you know, probably to most eyes indiscriminate scrum of folk. Like, they're all wearing flashing bronze. They don't even have jerseys. How do you even know who to fight? But he's targeting specific specific individuals, not just because of who they are tactically, which he is doing that, but also who they are personally. Like, it, it's noted that he recognizes people, that he goes after um, folks that he's got particular grudges against or that he knows hitting them is going to hurt the other side. Um it's, it's and in fact, at, really at one point, I mean, Zeus has to rescue Hector from Agamemnon. Oh yeah, like that's that's serious. I I think his his general jerkiness from the beginning of the book leads us to underestimate him and and see him as just kind of a a blowhard. Well, and also we take Achilles seriously, right? Because Achilles in book one says you've never actually picked up a sword and killed anyone in this war. It's all of us here who have done the killing while you sit back and take the treasure. And we believe Achilles because 
I don't know. Uh, he, 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 he gives a good speech, right? Uh, but then, I mean, you get to book 11 and all of a sudden it's, okay, what was Achilles talking about? Because Agamemnon was, you know, a whisker away from taking Hector out halfway through the poem. Yeah, this guy's a god of war. I mean, he, the only reason why he hasn't been successful so far, and we know this because they keep saying it, is that the gods have ordained a particular ebb and flow and eventual ends to Troy. Um, whether or not Agamemnon is effective is almost beside the point. Um, but here we actually get to see that if, if Agamemnon had been left to himself, if gods hadn't just been like poking around and meddling and stuff, um, they might have been they might have been home by Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, and if we had focus on the style a little bit of the poem itself, um, to me, it very much, if you were to translate it to modern cinema, it, it employs slow motion, uh, uh, if you will. And, and yes. you don't just get sort of like massive battle scenes. And I think part of the purpose of the slow motion is to kind of emphasize the this canniness that you guys are talking about. You guys brilliant discussion here about him targeting specific people in um book 11 line oh somewhere between 100 and 110 um and right in the midst sprang agamemnon first and killed a fighter benor a veteran captain then his aide oilus lashing on their team so you get that little moment of he's like it's going slow enough for him to name all the people that that um it's not just faceless slaughter right um this is purposeful and it needs to slow down the story enough to show us the purpose behind it a little bit um down the car and i want to build towards the the gruesomeness too which is actually i think also again another function of the slow motion here uh down from the car he'd leapt squaring off charging in full fury full face straight into agamemnon's spearhead ramming sharp the rim of the bronze helmet could not hold it Clean through the heavy metal and bone, the point burst and the brain splattered all inside the cask, right? That's like, that is, um, if you've ever seen 300 or something like that, uh, where yeah. the slow motion just emphasizes the gruesomeness. Another movie that does this really well is this, uh, is the second movie, is Dread, not Judge Dread with Sylvester Stallone, uh, Dread with Carl Urban. It's an amazing movie that uses um, slow motion violence to incredible effect. And I think that that's what's going on here to show both um, – canniness and, and strategy I guess by targeting specific people and the skill with which he's he's targeting them and I think that this these little moments where the plot slows down to kind of look at a particular uh, um, image of, of, a, of, of a, something that could just be lost lost in the in the in the wash here um, I think is, is actually really effective right it reminds me and I'm going to jump into the late 90s here uh, of Oliver Stone's NFL movie, Any Given Sunday. Okay. Because, I mean, for, <laughs> for all of the vices of that movie, and it has plenty, uh, one of the things that's really cool about it is that when you got uh, Dennis Quaid's veteran quarterback out on the field, uh, all of the defenders are moving in slow motion, mm. and you've got this kind of smooth jazz soundtrack going in the background. I mean, uh, when you see the football field from his perspective, uh he is the fastest thing out there, even though he's aging and about to fall apart bodily. Uh, you know, you contrast that with Jamie Foxx's character, who's the rookie quarterback. Everything's blurry. Everything's moving double speed. The film's sped up. Uh, you know, you hear things hit, and then it's only when he's looking up from the ground that you see that there was a defender there. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I, I, it's interesting, Danny. I think you're right, and I think that that's... Um, it's not even a war movie necessarily, but it's one of the movies that does that, I think, as well as any. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially yep. a war movie. It's just, instead of bullets, it's it's flea flickers or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, instead of Al, and instead of Agamemnon, you got Al Pacino, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, if we can sort of zoom up above the human scrum, as awesome as Agamemnon is... Uh, I think it's really important in book 11 uh, to note that they fight at this point. Um, we've seen the influence of the gods in different ways previously in the Iliad, um, usually with an agenda. Hera wants to accomplish this. 
you know, uh, Athena wants to accomplish that. Apollo and Artemis and Aphrodite want to help out the Trojans in these distinct ways. But in this case, the rest of the gods are more or less sitting this one out, but Zeus sends strife. Right, right. Uh, who just flies down and uh, line 11, their strife took her stand, raising her high-pitched scream, great and terrible, lashing the fighting fury in each Achaean's heart, no stopping them now, mad for war and struggle. Um, this is just, this is just slaughter. Um, the, uh, it continues uh, around line uh 70, 76, 77, the men like gangs of reapers slashing down the reaping rows and coming closer. And you have that epic simile where um, before we've seen predators like a wolf, like a lion, like a or or uh, like a bull or like a boar, you know, other fierce animal imagery. Now it's just agriculture. <laughs> it's just it's just reaping. And the gods, at their royal ease, reclining in the halls, they're all blaming Zeus, but Zeus retires apart from the other gods. He sat aloof, glorying in his power, gazing out over the city walls of Troy, the warships of Achaia, the flash of bronze, fighters killing, and fighters killed. Like, at this point... It's not about winning. It's just about killing, and Zeus is Zeus is interested. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just so so the spectacle here. Um, I mean, we we've been noting all of these different effects, but maybe the way that we're describing this experience of watching this. Uh, of watching this combat, the, the slow motion, the tight focus, you know, that moment where it's almost as if um, the guy who get hit gets, gets an X-ray and you can see the bone break. <laughs> all, all of those kind of combat movie things, uh, that, that, that's, Zeus, that's Zeus's perspective. He's yeah. the one who sees it like this, and he just thinks it's cool. <laughs> Can we talk about uh, when Agamemnon kills Bambi? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> uh, it's when he targets these two guys. Uh, what are their names? Two sons of Priam, one legitimate, one not, uh, that had been previously captured by Achilles and then released. Uh, Isis and Antiphus. And uh, Agamemnon knew them both, it says in line 130. He'd seen them once by the ships when swift Achilles had dragged them in from Ida. So these two sons of Priam had just been keeping sheep, and Achilles had gathered them in uh, presumably a, a raid on the sheep. Um, and now uh, Agamemnon sees them again, and thinking how think how a lion mauling the soft, weak young of a running deer. He storms and invades the lair to tear their tender hearts out. And the mother do, doe, what can she do? She's helpless. So not a single Trojan could save those two from death. So when they die, they don't get they don't get hero metaphors. They're just they're just fawns. <laughs> they're just Bambi. Um it's it's Pretty amazing. The next guys try to. The next guys beg for mercy. He refuses. Um, and then that la And then that line on uh, one uh, one seventy seven, one seventy eight, and there they lay sprawled over the field, craved more by vultures than by wives. Mm. I, it's it's just it's just butchery at this point. I, I want to say, though, um, it is. It totally is. But it, it, lest we kind of forget that it's also very kind of human, um, yeah. there's almost like a Terrence Malick moment. <laughs> I'm thinking of like the movie The Thin Red Line, um, which is yeah. like mm -hmm. it, it's a it's a war movie and it's got butchery, right? But it's also very sensitive to the humanity of, of, the, of the soldiers, right? At one point on line 270 or so, um, I think it's Agamemnon – 
kills a guy named Ephidimus, Ephidimus. Um, and there's just sort of like hand-to-hand combat. Um, Ephidimus is, I think, it looks to me like his uh, his knife bends onto the armor, and Agamemnon just like they are in this wrestling match, and Agamemnon kills him. Um, and let me just kind of read what Homer does with that moment. He hacked his neck with a sword and loosed his limbs, and there he dropped and slept the sleep of bronze. Um, and so, again, more, uh, you know, just, you know, uh, a train wreck sort of uh, malice here. But poor soldier, striving to help his fellow Trojans, Far from his wedded wife, his new bride, no joy had he known from her for all his gifts. The full hundred oxen he gave her on the spot, then promised a thousand head of goats and sheep from the boundless herds he'd rounded up himself. Now the son of Atreus stripped him, robbed his corpse, and then strode back to uh, the waiting Argive armies, hoisting the glimmering gear. Right, so that's a moment in which this guy gets a little bio, right? I mean, you get yeah. a little bit of uh, insight into this rather anonymous person's like human life that won't be lived anymore. Um, and it, it's very kind of like stunning and beautiful uh when you think about like it it makes a real tragedy out of this guy's death it isn't just carnage yeah and what's interesting is you get a a miniature version of what you're going to get later on on a grand scale uh this is what inspires koan in the next few lines yeah uh to actually throw the spear that wounds agamemnon right Mm -hmm. uh so i mean you know this is I, i i think it's intentional i mean it's it's a foreshadowing of what will eventually bring down Hector. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that Hector's going to burn the ships. It's not that Hector's going to insult Agam- uh, Agamemnon. It's that Hector's going to kill the wrong young man, and that's going to draw the wrath of somebody nearby, yeah. right? <clears throat> so, you know, again, uh, you could make this, you know, just a coincidental foreshadowing, but I, I, I think there's some poetic intention to it. Oh, for sure. And I'm glad you pronounced the name because I thought it was weird to see a guy named Coon in this. Uh, well, since we had the wolf himself earlier, right? <laughs> we got the wolf and the lion and the coon. Yeah, then Parson got up in his chariot and like, I want to take it's, out Diomedes. It's Gomer and Goober's third cousin. <laughs> nice. Yep, yep, yep. Oh, shoot. I, I also notice, and I mean, I, 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 I know that in the future for you listeners, in the past for us hosts, I uh, compared Hector to Darth Vader, and this is another moment that makes me think about that comparison because uh, he loses to Diomedes here. Mm-hmm. So I mean, in the course of this poem, he loses fights to Diomedes and to Ajax and to Achilles, and he probably would have lost to Agamemnon. So I mean, on the one hand, when he is in frenzy mode when he's a berserker to use david's term uh he is this unstoppable force of nature he is a fire on the battlefield right uh and yet again in this poem he's not invincible right he uh he loses these one-on-one fights to a bunch of people in this poem yeah he's a he's a serious threat but all of them are serious threats um i guess it's any given sunday uh you know um i think that's one of the reasons why in times of peace and even on the battlefield sometimes uh they they have a kind of respect for one another and even when they're talking trash maybe one of the reasons why they're so exultant in the downfall of the other is because they realize just how much a threat the other was. Um, yeah, it could have gone either way. Yeah, it's it's this moment where I have achieved a domination that was uh, for for many of these guys in no way, um, you know, a done deal. It was not it was not a sure thing, and uh, but they happen to pull it off. They know that Hector's scary, but yeah, Hector Hector meets his match. But they're all a match for one another, and it all depends on which god is invisibly, you know, putting their putting their thumb on the scale. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's such a strong contrast to the the worst instances of the Enter the Dragon style martial arts movie. Yeah, where the main bad guy 
there is never a question he's going to win every fight till he gets to the last one. Right. I mean, you yeah. know, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking of Chong Lee from Bloodsport. It's like, do you really think Ray Jackson's going to beat him? No. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, because he's got to fight Van Dam, right? Um, but this one's not like that. I mean, you know, the the with the exception of Achilles. I mean, who, like I said, really is a force of nature in this poem. Uh, the rest of them, I mean, in a in a square fight, any of them could beat any of the others when you're talking about the main heroic, you know, Agamemnon, Ajax, Odysseus, Hector, um, you know, Aeneas. I mean, it's a it's a straight fight. I mean, you know, it's it's a matter of fortune. Two K to grab the Greek. Yep. And even being foresighted or uh, having the gift of insight, that those things don't help either. Um, when, the, when the mood of Zeus changes, he had given Agamemnon his day. But then when Agamemnon is, mooted, is, is wounded, uh, he, he specifically tells Hector, uh, he sends... Uh, 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 Iris, he sends the rainbow uh, to come tell Hector when uh, it's Agamemnon's battlefield right up until it gets wounded. And once he gets wounded, then it's yours. And so everything flips and it goes from let's tell who first Agamemnon killed to who was the first and the last that Hector slaughtered. And then it just gives a grocery list. Um, now it's his turn. Um, but Odysseus feels the shift as the Achaean mood changes, right? It's as if their mood is almost dictated by the gods in ways that they can't understand. The Achaeans uh, start start panicking and, and, and running away. Odysseus shouts, what's wrong with us? <laughs> what happened? We were winning. <laughs> right, which I, I love this as, a, as an allegory for the contingency of warfare, right? Yeah. Uh, and again, I, I tend yeah. to read Homer allegorically. I think I've been taught by Plato to do that. And I love this about the Iliad that uh, we don't try to give abstract psychological names to the things that happen that make a battle sway one way or the other. Right. We say, all right, this God left the battlefield and this one stepped on. And, you know, I mean, yep. that that strikes me as in a lot of ways more fitting than the more abstract mathematical psychological theories that people try to apply to human struggle. Yeah. I mean, Diomedes, I think, is is the one who has that insight inside the poem, though. Um, he says, I stand by, I stand and fight by God and take the worst, but little joy will, br it will it bring our comrades now, because Zeus, the king of the clouds, has pitched on victory for the Trojans, not for us. Um, and this is the same Diomedes that, you know, few books before actually got to see the gods on the battlefield and hit some of them. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, he, he, he doesn't have Aries in the dirt. Yeah. He doesn't have God vision anymore, but I think he's now aware of the ways in which the, the fates of mortals on the battlefield are not merely up to, um, the forces that they can control. He sees what they are at the mercy at, even when he can't physically see it. And then just a few lines later, uh, Diomedes kills two sons of a fortune teller. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who refused to let his two boys march to war, but they fought, they fought him all the way. And now Diomedes has killed them. Um, I mean, just those two images of Diomedes knowing I'm going to keep fighting, even though I know Zeus has Zeus has shifted uh, shifted the momentum, and the two that he the two that he just immediately kills are the two sons of a father who also saw it coming, but mm -hmm. they went anyway and die. Well, guys, I'm looking at our time, and we're coming up on an hour. I do want to uh, comment, or have you guys comment first, and I'll kind of chime in. Uh, at the end of Book 11, I mean, really, in a very concrete way, events get set in motion that are going to define the second half of the poem, and that is when Nestor goes not to Achilles, but to Patroclus, and tells Patroclus, all right, you know, your young friend, he's a hothead, 
he's not going to fight for us. But if his armor is out on the battlefield, people will rally to it. We might be able to win this war yet. And Patroclus, at the very least, is considering this. Danny, uh, you know, everyone who's hearing this poem in the 8th century BC knows how this story goes, knows that Patroclus is going to eat it. Yeah. Uh, how do you like this as a way to set that up? Um, again, I think you sort of see this um, establishing a trope that we still use a lot today, right? And, and I think you have the kind of motivating, inciting incident, right? Uh, yeah. That motivates the hero to do uh, what they need to do in the third act to uh, to win the, to win the game or to whatever to win the battle. And, and so, yeah, to me, I think it it's utterly recognizable um, and, and again predictable. Like if you just come to this poem without knowing any of the history today you would recognize that this guy's about <laughs> he's about to be sacrificed to uh, to get um, Achilles back on the battlefield right and so um, yeah to me I think that it's uh, it's one of these kind of archetypal moments of this poem that you uh, that reverberates through today because it's so um, dramatic I mean I think it's effective and that's the reason we go back to it over and over and over right and, and even to, to negative effect often I mean uh, feminists will complain that women are always kind of like uh, sacrificed in superhero movies to kind of motivate the uh, the, the hero to become a hero right uh, and, oh absolutely and so, yeah. absolutely yeah, so we, we've kind of translated it in, in sort of negative and stereotypical ways as well, but it is an effective uh, way of um, making a human being invest himself in something bigger than himself uh, in this case here. So, Yeah. What I think really enriches, enriches that insight, Danny, is that Patroclus is motivated by that within the story too. Um, literally the last thing that he does in book 11 is tend to the wound of a comrade. Mm -hmm. And so Nestor's speech is part of what leads him to come to uh, Achilles in tears um, a few books later. But uh, that the, the Nestor's speech is part of it, but also he, he has, he, he's been, he's been giving medical support. He's, he's literally seen, um, the the effects of this battle on on his comrades. Um, so so the the death of, of uh, Patroclus is I mean, he's Achilles' friend, but for us the readers, Patroclus seems to be the guy who's paying attention to the human cost of this, who really feels the burden of it, and it gets to him, and he wants to help, and he is helping in a support way. Um, it's closer to, and you know, you could probably cite, you know, any number of, of better examples of this, but I'm thinking of the death of Shepard Book in the Serenity movie. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. when it's not just that Shepard Book is a friend of, you know, the crew of the Firefly, it's that he's Shepard Book. He's the guy who was always there to help other people, whose life was defined by that other-centered, support-giving, nurturing altruism. Patroclus is the closest to that we get in 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 the Achaean side um, to have him be the one um, who's being set up for death. Uh, I think not just motivates Achilles, but also helps us. Um, to turn on Hector, which is kind of hard to do at this point. Hector's been pretty sympathetic, you know, um, but to kill Patroclus, who is also a deeply sympathetic character, uh, I, I think is helping to, to, to manage our, our reactions. It reminds me of Uncle Ben um, and, uh, and yes. Peter Parker, right? I mean, yes. Uncle Ben is the good person who who knows how to live, and we've got lots of sympathy for him. And because of Peter Parker's inaction, Uncle Ben is dead, right? And then that motivates Peter Parker to take action. And so, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I didn't even <laughs> think about the Uncle Ben connection, but I was thinking, you know, this is, you know, uh, I, I think of it as a superhero trope. I mean, you know, Patroclus is the character who's, you know, impassionedly saying, we can't just stand here while this is happening. We got to do something. And, you know, the, the, again, you know, it's that person charging off and getting killed that, you know, ends up getting the rest of them actually to drop their pettiness and 
you know, fight the last battle. Yeah. Yeah. Agent Coulson. I mean, it never, you can go with the list um, that never ends, Agent right? Coulson, Black Widow. I yeah. mean, it's, yeah. It's a trope. It is a trope, yeah. <laughs> and Homer gave it to us. <laughs> well, friends, Homer gave us a very long poem. Uh, so we're not going to try to take it all on in an hour. That would be against the spirit of the core curriculum. So for now, uh, we're going to let you wait for the next episode when I believe David and Michael and I will be taking on books 12 and 13 of the Iliad. I know this because in my world it has already happened. But, uh, and listeners, I'm sorry, I'm going to be doing this every episode I'm on, so just get used to it. Um, But I will say uh, thank you for downloading, thank you for listening in. Uh, Does uh, Core Curriculum have its own email address yet, or should they just write into the Facebook page? We'll say right into the Facebook page. Tell us what you think. Uh, you can write to the Sectarian Review page or the Christian Humanist page. We all follow each other anyway. <laughs> so uh, this is Nathan Gilmore. And in behalf of David Grubbs and Danny Anderson, I want to thank you again for downloading. And uh, come listen in for uh, books 12 and 13 next week. <laughs>